This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I want to pray for us really quickly as we go into yet another really heavy subject that God brings us in into the text. And this is going to be another one that we have to spend some time kind of dissecting. So let's let's just pray really quickly. Father, you are worthy. You are good. You are healer. You are our savior. You are our the one that brings the remedy. You're the one that makes all things new. And so, God, as we go through more about your kingdom and we go through more about your heart for us and your heart for the ways that we see the world, your heart for the ways in which we engage with one another, God, I pray that you would enlarge our view of you and that you would make our hearts look like yours. God, I pray that you would excise anything in us that does not look like you. I pray that you would rip out anything that doesn't love like you do. And God, I pray that you would give us conviction and then give us your compassion, that you were always working on us and changing us to look in love like you do. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going forward, walking through this series on this this famous sermon that Jesus preached. It's the longest sermon in the New Testament. It is the most famous sermon for which Jesus is known. The Sermon on the Mount. And here on this mountain, as folks have come and Jesus has done all these uh, incredible miracles, said a lot of provocative things in passing, and folks have just been like, I just want to get a look at this guy. I want to know what he's about. And when he gets this critical mass, he starts to say, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what our Father's kingdom looks like. This is how we think. This is what humility looks like. This is what mourning your sin looks like. This is what uh, finding reconciliation looks like. He just walks through things that are so opposite from the ways in which we normally act. Who would think in order to be more like God, in order to exalt, in order to go up, you have to go down. You have to go humble. The world doesn't work that way. In order to understand what it means to show real grace and mercy, we've got to engage with God's grace and mercy. So many things that Jesus shows in this sermon. It's kind of turning things on its head. So we most recently talked about Jesus changing the way that they viewed adultery and lust, right? And how we talked about how Jesus really points some things out that it's not enough for them to just say, I won't commit adultery. It's they they have to focus on the lust. What does it mean? We talked about that last week. What does it mean then for me to exchange a reality for a fantasy? What does it mean for me to want? So, because it's only when I take a fantasy and I want the fantasy that I will begin to think I'm entitled to the fantasy and then the lust takes root and then I make a plan. We said that before, right? Lust is desire with a plan, illicit desire with a plan. And so Jesus really kind of put that, put that to the Pharisees and said, it's not enough for you to just be glad that you don't do this. The heart is the thing that needs to be addressed. What is happening on a heart level that makes you want to act on the desire? So Jesus lays things out for us that we all can connect to. We all know what that is, whatever that desire is. Then Jesus takes it one step further. He doesn't just deal with the lust and and how that is the heart of adultery. But then he begins to walk through yet the way that lust can play out and the effect it has on us and possibly our marriages. And so here's what he says 
in Matthew 5, two quick verses, 31 and 32. It was also said that whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman then commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These are very, very, very hard, tough subjects and topics because all of us on some level, whether we directly or Family-wise, we have these issues that pop up in our families. We have relatives, we have parents where these kinds of issues have been a major, major thing. And, and many times there are various ways that churches engage on this topic and various ways that Christians have engaged on this topic. And so we need to kind of figure out what, what is Jesus talking about here? Like, why is he even bringing this up? Because I think sometimes we just jump to, oh, great, uh, maybe uh, I was hurt by adultery or maybe I was guilty of adultery. Let me find the passage that gets to the adultery and divorce thing to figure out, can I or can't I? And we're kind of missing why Jesus is bringing this up first. So we need to go back a little bit and talk about what's the context here into which Jesus is giving this corrective, if you will. The first thing we need to understand is how did marriage work back then? You can't just try so, so many times we will take a passage of scripture that has a very distinct context and we try to force feed it into whatever our context is here and we miss the whole boat. And then we create whole doctrines based off of that and then hold each other to that. So we got to be careful not to do that. So what was actually happening during this time in biblical times? Well, number one, you have to know what it took in order for you to get married. This uh, we know that there was already a, a, a different power dynamic that existed because ultimately there was only one gender that could ever marry or choose to marry and divorce. That was men. So we already know that it's not going to be a one-to-one -one ratio here in trying to understand this text and applying it already because we know that when it came down to marriage and divorce, that was a man's game and it was women that were kind of the bartering chips, if you will. A few years ago, we preached a sermon about quote-unquote biblical marriage, and I was trying to encourage us to be careful the way we use the word biblical, because there's at least seven different types of marriages in the Bible, and no one would want any of them. So you need to be careful when we lazily go, well, that's not biblical. Well, there's horrible things in the Bible that happen. You have to be careful about what you're saying. Instead of saying something's biblical or not, say that's not uh, aligning with the heart of God or not. It's much, because you can be more clear about what you mean. Saying things are biblical is a catch-all. So any kind of interpretation you have, you can now say that's biblical. And when people don't ascribe to, subscribe to that, you go, you're not being biblical. Be careful with that. The heart of God is what we're getting after. So what's the heart of God here? During this time when people would get married, number one, if you were a man and you wanted to marry a woman, and typically uh, there, this was a business transaction. Y'all know that very few people were able, at least people who were um, wealthy and people who had means, a lot of times marriage was not for romance and love. Matter of fact, the history of marriage is actually just over the last maybe a couple hundred years, the common folk and everyone else could all engage in this idea of marrying for love. So many times this was a business transaction that was going to help create protection for women. If you were a woman and you were not married, you had no protection. There was no, there was no governing structure that protected you. If something happened to you, there was really no covering for you. So it was in your best interest economically. It was best in, in your best interest for security purpose to be married. This wasn't just, I just can't wait for my knight on a stallion to come in and all of my romantic you know, predilections will be satisfied. That wasn't at all what that was about. So look through several marriages in, in the Bible and ask, if which one would you want to be, Leah or Rachel in that marriage? 
Think about the things that would happen when folks would, that's part of the reason why this is a very, very controversial issue. We can't even talk about it now, but there are some really hard examples of people being forced to marry in the Bible that on the surface of it, you would go, man, that is just so unjust and it's so messed up. But for that time, that was actually extending more protection to women. So I'll give you a quick example. If a woman was assaulted and a man assaulted a, a, a single woman in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, and a woman was assaulted or raped, what would happen is that man would then be forced to have to marry her. Now, whole other thing to talk about and a whole lot of things we would have to deal with with that alone. But contextually still understand that the reason why even that law was there was to at least create more protection for the woman. I know it sounds crazy now to be like, man, but why would you have to be with? And I agree, but there was this other thing. Okay, now you can't leave her to be a pariah and not have any protection. You now have to marry and provide and care for her. These were the hard times that, that, that this, into which these laws about divorce entered. All hard, ugly, don't have a, a whole good feel on how to harmonize all these things. But that is what, this is the world that we're talking about when these laws are being made. So if you wanted to marry, and outside of that really horrible situation, there are only a few like that, but if you wanted to marry, you would have to come up with uh, this, this uh, financial amount or this uh, kind of economic gift that you would have to uh, give to the family of the woman that you wanted to marry. And they called it a dowry. And depending on people's socioeconomic status, depending on what they, where they came from, you would get this particular gift. Normally they would negotiate it and it could be money, it could be land, it could be servants, it could be any number of things. Now the purpose of that dowry, if I'm wanting to go marry a person, I would have to go to their parents and be able to say, this is what I'm giving you. The purpose of giving them that was A, so that they would have something because they're losing something in the child because people worked on the land, they worked on the farms, they actually helped bring in uh, money or some type of currency. So I'm losing something here if I'm giving my daughter away because again, they were bartering chips. And so if I give this away, I need something in return. So you gave this dowry. The thing is, the dowry was never meant, the principle of that dowry was never meant to be touched. That was meant to be a part of the inheritance in case something happened. So if the husband dies or is gone, woman was, would be able to go back to her family and go, this is what I need to draw from in order to be able, they could take money out of the interest they would get off of that. So I'm, I'm breaking this down now because you need to understand how big of a deal it was. If you were going to marry somebody, it was a very big deal. And it was most people, most men, if they did that, they did not want to be in a situation where if they, if they were to, uh, if they were to just get rid of their wives, they had to figure out what to do with that financial settlement. So here's, here's what happened. So now with marriage, you've got this incredible situation. They put this in place to ensure that women would be cared for. That's why the law was there. That's why the dowry was there, to ensure that they would have some degree of safety in case something happens. So what would happen if somebody wanted to divorce? Well, men, women couldn't choose a divorce. Men, only men could. So if a man wanted to uh, seek a divorce, he could basically seek a divorce for whatever he wanted. Anytime he just wanted to be like, matter of fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that basically says if there's any, any type of indecency and people still to this day can't tell you exactly what that is. We know it can't just be adultery because there was a whole other law for adultery that was stoning and death. But here, if there's any type of indecency and there's several other examples where things would look, if, if you're not what I thought you were in a bunch of different ways, I can divorce you. If, if, uh, and then people started expanding. Many of the Jewish leaders started expanding indecency to cover anything. You don't listen to me when I'm talking. I'm divorcing you. 
I don't like the way you cook. I'm divorcing you. I don't like the way that we converse about this. I don't like the way our kids look when they came out. I'm divorcing you. You could just come up with, I'm, there are some outlandish things when you go back through old Hebrew history of just off the wall reasons why people would divorce. And guess what would happen? Those women were now left on their own. There was no one to actually, and here's the deal. Many times they would find ways to get their dowry back if they could prove to the family that something was wrong with the product. So you had this. And today, I think a lot of times people tend to think about each other, especially uh, men often would think about women as if you are, you are a commodity for me. And so if you're going to be a commodity, make yourself the right commodity because you don't realize you're talking like ogreish men from the Old Testament. We're not talking like actual Christ-centered men when we talk like that. So we got to be careful. So anyway, they would go in and they would say, uh, I have any just flippant reason why I want to divorce this woman because I want to get that dowry back. Problem is, it, oh, the law really said you couldn't get that back for just any flippant reason. But things got loose and things got lax. So here, Jesus is talking to these, these leaders, most of which are married, because we know that in order to be kind of a rabbi in the Sanhedrin, you likely, most the, uh, uh, theologians agree, you likely had to be married. So these are folks that are married. And they know that they're not supposed to commit adultery, and that's great. And so they're like, hey, I got my wife. And some of them probably have engaged in the same way. Hey, I think I saw somebody else that I want instead. So what charge could I bring up so that I could find a way to possibly get my dowry back so I can go get this one over here? You just see just how much of what, what we would do when we commodify each other. You just become a trading chip for me. And men were the ones that were the guilty parties because they were the only ones that could do it then. So you've got these situations where people are seeking out divorces and getting divorces and leaving these women on their own with no real protection, with no real security, oftentimes no way of caring for themselves. And they're trying, and, and all of a sudden you've got tons of, and sometimes these women would, some men would then remarry them and then they would create other issues. And so here we are, we're looking at this idea of divorce. And the thing we got to understand is divorce was actually, it was very easy, but there was a lot of pressure to stay married. Your relatives would put a lot of pressure on the, the different clans people were part and those financial complications. That's the reason why here Jesus starts to qualify. He starts to give a little bit more uh, understanding, elucidating what marriage is supposed to be. He's reminding the Pharisees, if you understood marriage rightly, first of all, everybody hear this. If you understood marriage rightly, you would never flippantly enter into it. And then you would never flippantly exit it either. If you understand marriage correctly, you would never flippantly enter into it and you would never flippantly get out of it. There's some key things that Jesus is wanting. So we got to understand the context. These are these, these Jewish leaders, they were a part of the crew that were kind of doing these flippant divorces and they were patting themselves on the, on the back saying, I didn't commit adultery. I'm not guilty of that. I kept the law. I, I'm not committing adultery. I, I haven't done anything against her. I just divorced her because I thought she was indecent and I got somebody else. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the thing that you, you think that you're so holy because you don't think you've done that, you actually have. And here's what he says. Let's read it again with that context in mind. Yeah, it was also said whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. By the way, real quick, that passage, the reason why that was there, the reason why you needed to give a written account of the divorce is because that was the only way that if they wanted legal to legally prove that they should get their dowry back, you need to go through the work. You had to go through the cumbersome process of getting it on paper or getting it written down. 
so that you it was really meant so that it would uh, uh, create some type of uh, to, to dissuade you from even flippantly doing that. Oh, you want to you want a divorce or something weird and crazy? Great. Go get it in writing. So that was a part of the law. If you're going to do that, go get it in writing. So, yes, it was also said whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you. Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, don't get caught up on the pronouns, as we said before, because now in our society, anybody can get a divorce. So this applies across the board. So we got to ask, why is it that in the midst of Jesus talking about forgiveness, and he does many times, that we are called to forgive 70 times seven, this kind of metaphor for almost infinite amounts of time that we should show forgiveness to one another. And yet here, and we see Paul brings this up as well, that he still gives a couple of grounds where you still, if these things happen, this is something that is allowed. It doesn't mean that he's commanding that you leave, but he's saying that it's allowed. We got to think about that for a minute. Why is it that that is allowable? Again, it's not commanded and it's possible to still reconcile, but why is it that that's the case? And the reason why we need to answer that question is because we have to understand how important God views the covenant of marriage. We have to understand how important God holds this covenant of marriage. And I think in all, for all of us in our, in our society, it's really easy to almost just, okay, it's just a throwaway. As a matter of fact, now it's, it, for a lot of people, what's the point? For a lot of people, it's like, I... I I can do all the things that I normally would do in a marriage now anyway. There's really nothing that's keeping me from doing the things I would normally do. What's the incentive for me to even be married? And it's understandable from just conventional logic purposes. I mean, it's, it's understandable to ask that question. But spiritually, that question means a lot more. If we understand, if we view, y'all, I don't care where you come from, what, how you think, please always get in the habit of Testing the way you think by the way God thinks. Get in that habit all the time. How you're just wired is never going to be enough. Don't just believe, I'm just wired this way, so I think this way, that's just me. We, it, there are a lot of specific examples we have in our lives and things that happen, and those are our truths. That's true. We can say our truth for that. But when it comes to these objective things God says, there's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's one truth. So, so ask yourself, this way that I'm thinking, does it align with God's truth? Or is it just something I've kind of created for myself to justify the things that I just really want to do? So when we enter into marriage, that's one of the things we have to think. Are we on the same page about what God has said about what's true about marriage? Like, that's a, that's a vital question. Are we on the same page about what God says about marriage? I can tell you, if we're not on the same page, then if or when certain things happen, there will be two, at least two different courses of action. So, so when you stop and go, okay, Jesus is really trying to show the Pharisees the same thing I'm hoping we get today. You guys are doing things because you have a false idea of what marriage really means to God. You're just treating this as nothing but a business decision. And when you think a better investment would work for you, you're going to go make the better investment you think. And you think that you're good because you didn't go do the egregious thing. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, by flippantly getting out, flippantly going into a marriage likely, and then flippantly getting out of a marriage, you now have made your, when you connect to another person, you've made yourself an adulterer. And further, think about what you've done to the person that you flippantly dismissed. 
Now they're the person who has been un, uh, uh, unjustly divorced. And if they go and marry someone, you make them an adulterer. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's actually exalting their view of marriage. He's saying that if you get to a place where you have this flippant view of marriage, you can actually make yourself an adulterer having done nothing else yet. And you could cause them to do the same. Now, in all of that, I feel like that it's important to note that when we, when we, when we think about this, these are very sensitive very sensitive issues and very difficult to parse through because there's lots of things that go into when those things happen. But I also want to talk about then, why does Jesus add this? He could have just said, hey, listen, when you guys, all you guys are doing, you're going in and you're getting divorced with these women, don't divorce them, period. Why does he include this one thing? And this is the other part that we need to understand. If we understand how important the covenant of marriage is, then we understand just how urgent and just how damaging infidelity is. And actually, God shows us that in many ways where he talks about his people, when he talks about the children of Israel and he talks about the ways in which they should be following him, do you realize how he always describes them as a wayward wife or a wayward spouse? God uses marriage constantly to give us this picture of the way in which he relates to us. So you'd have to ask yourself, if I'm going to, if, if we are in situations where adultery is an option, then we've got to ask ourselves, am I seeing my spouse the way God sees me? Because, and we all have to ask ourselves that question, right? Am I seeing my spouse the way God sees me? If God sees me as I really want an upgrade or I really don't like the way he has just been acting, I need a new one, then okay, act in, in accordingly. But ultimately, we serve a God that says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So if you serve a God that will never leave or forsake, and then you get into a marriage that's supposed to model the very relationship that says, I will never leave or forsake. And then we, in, in turn, begin to leave and forsake one another. What are we saying about God? If marriage is supposed to give a picture of the way God loves us, when you enter into a different type of infidelity kind of relationships, when we do that, we are blaspheming God. Because we're saying something about God that isn't true. So, so what Jesus is doing, he's trying to get all of us here, y'all. He's trying to get us to a place where we understand just how big of a deal it is when you just flippantly treat, when we flippantly treat our marriages like just ways to upgrade. I can promise you, if that was your reason to get married, it'll be your reason to step out. If your reason to get married was we're a good power couple, great. The moment you find somebody that can be more powerful for you, that'll be your temptation. So there's something more that has to lead you into marriage, right? And it can't just be how great they are. It can't just be how great they make me feel. It can't be just all the ways that, that they make me feel better because of whatever trauma I've had. And if I've had issues as a young man and issues that made me feel a certain kind of way and this person makes me feel so much better, it can't be just because of that. Because if that's the primary reason, then if anybody else makes me feel better, then that will be the temptation. So there's got to be something more. And that more has to be, Lord, I'm so overwhelmed by your love and your faithfulness to me that I'm going to enter into that with this person. Yes, all those other things are still factors. They should be, right? The, the things you need, the things that you want, they need to be factors. But you got to get to a place where you're going, now that I know that they fit this, 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 and that, the question is, am I willing to commit to them the way God commits to us? Y'all, this is the only way that actual marriages really work. 
Because when that commitment level is there and it's mutual, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna attempt and endeavor earnestly to love you the way God loves me. I'm gonna endeavor earnestly to commit to you the way God commits to me. I'm gonna endeavor earnestly to, to stand by you the way God stands by me. And, and here's the other thing, and I say this with couples doing premarital counseling all the time. I'm gonna say this, and this, I promise, that this might ruffle feathers, but that's nothing new here. One of the things that we need to stop saying Hey, I'm going to say this. We, we need to stop saying this. People will get married, we'll have couples that come in and be like, you know, we, we're just coming in right now and we're just flat out saying, no matter what, divorce is not an option. Now, hear me, I'm not saying keep divorce on the table. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, you need to know that divorce might happen if you commit these things. Sometimes people love, you realize that we'll throw that out there because that's almost like, great, I got you no matter what. If I do this, you're going to, and then we turn it into this godly thing. You're going to love God so much, you still won't do it. That's not what this says. It's actually important that you go, your actions and what you do could potentially ruin this. I need to know that. I need to, it's vitally important that we walk into a marriage saying, man, there are things I could do to break this covenant. There are things I could do that could ruin this covenant. Do you realize that you treat each other better when you know it's possible it could be lost? If I think it's possible I could lose you, do you know what it's going to look like for me to love you? But if I know there's no way I could lose you, honestly, what's my incentive to stay up on the up and up? And Jesus knows that. So when he enters into this, he's really trying to elevate. He's elevating protection for women, and he's elevating the way that we should be viewing this covenant that's supposed to be imaging, imaging God's covenant with us. So what do we do? When we, when we look at this, one of the things that we need to understand when we talk about uh, divorce and remarriage, and there's a few other passages where you'll notice like Paul picks up on the same theme and he talks a good bit about uh, what it should look like for uh, married couples. And if a, if a person, uh, he talks about a couple of other exceptions. Uh, infidelity is one exception. The other exception to the marriage rule is if there's an unbeliever and the unbeliever chooses to leave and desert, if they desert you and they're gone, you're not bound in those situations. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. So you've got those two exceptions. Outside of those two exceptions, though, Jesus is talking to these Pharisees where that's probably not the case for them. Most of these guys that probably have had other wives before and divorces, that wasn't because their, their, their wives were caught. You do realize that back then, it was a very fearful thing if you were a woman to even commit adultery. That's why most of the men were doing it. I mean, they had to do it with somebody, so we know it was with women. But women couldn't just initiate that on their own. If they initiated and the guy was like, what are you doing? They might get stoned. So ultimately, <laughs> you couldn't really commit adultery unless the man wanted it first. So again, he's looking at these Pharisees who likely have been caught in those things before. Don't feel any degree of shame or guilt and that's something that we also often need to ask ourselves. If I do get into a place or in a situation in my life where I grieve God's heart, what do I do with that? See, these Pharisees likely had gotten to a place where this never grieved their heart. They had probably likely done real damage to other women before, but they got so caught up in their worship ceremonies, so caught up in the ways that they look so good being holy, so caught up in all of the rituals that they do as good Jewish men, so distracted from the things they should have been mourning over. This is what we do with our sin. That's what I do with my sin. It's super easy to just distract myself 
so that I don't have to stop and enter into the things that grieve God's heart. So Jesus says something to have to make them hopefully grieve the things, mourn the things that grieve God's heart. You guys have likely been doing these kind of divorces. So I know that you guys think that you're so great because you heard me talk about lust and adultery before and you think, oh, that's not me. I don't do that. But actually you have done that. The moment you flippantly uh, uh, blasphemed God and the way you conducted your marriage and the way that you got rid of it and then ended up being with someone else, you've actually made yourself an adulterer and you made them an adulterer. That's heavy. It's heavy. Because when you look at all the things that Jesus says, Jesus is truly trying to get us always to go, give me God's heart on this. That is really ultimately what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Give me God's heart on this. That's it. And so when, when, when we come to a place where any place where sin arises and we get caught up in any particular sin, we're caught up in a sin because we have our heart on it and not God's heart on it. That's, that's, where, we, that's where we go. Now, one of the things that we need to also know is that in the midst of this, the fact that, that uh, Jesus is pointing out and he includes the infidelities is to make that exception clear that marriages can be killed by immoral unfaithfulness, by infidelity. That one flesh piece that God uses, that Hebrew root echad is this huge, very, very deep, rich word of oneness. And basically he, he calls us one flesh because he wants us to see our oneness in the way that the Trinity exists in oneness. He wants us to see that God is one and you're to engage and to celebrate that oneness in such, and, and the way you celebrate it is in the way that you comport your marriage. Now, with all of that said, let me just say this. It does not mean that if those things occur, that a marriage is inevitably killed. It doesn't mean that. We see this in many other places. The same rhythms of repentance are the same. The same rhythms of repentance still should happen, right? So it's not, if, if there is a situation where this exception is met and, 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 and adultery occurs, What's, what's our job? What's the role then? Enter into these fruits of repentance, these rhythms of repentance. The same thing that we talked about before when we're talking about 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. What does it mean to be zealous about clearing ourselves? There's no, hear me out. There is no guarantee that all the zeal will, will automatically fix it. That's why Jesus put the allowance there. If there was, if it was a, a given, then he wouldn't put the allowance there. He would go, if there's adultery, just make sure that you repent right and come back to the table. That's not a promise. That's an ideal. That's what we want to see happen. And that's what we should all be trying to, to, to bring about. But there's no guarantee. Why? Because that covenant is so important that when it's broken, something actually breaks internally. Something actually starts to affect the both of you. But if, but there are, there are times when people are, come together and they enter into these rhythms of repentance with one another. And they get to a place where uh, they, uh, you go to a place where you walk through the Beatitudes with your own sin. So go through the Beatitudes with your own sin. If you've ever been in that situation of being uh, in an infidelity kind of relationship and, or an adultery situation, this isn't like a scarlet letter where you have to walk around and feel like you're just a pariah for the rest of your life. Because whether or not you are able to reconcile with that person and the goal, the hope, the prayer is that you can. But even if you don't, finding ways to do the work of repentance is good for you. 
And it's good for your relationship with God too. And it might actually be really good for your marriage. And so there are cases, I've seen in both cases where people, infidelity happens and they're not able to do it. And I know people who have, infidelity happens and they have found, it's hard, it's a hard road, but they have found ways to do these rhythms of repentance and continue these rhythms throughout their marriage. It's hard. Your marriage is never the same after that. It's not necessarily about it being better or worse, but it's different. I heard a woman tell her husband one time, she said, if you commit adultery, it's, I, I can't say whether or not I would leave or not. I just know that for the rest of our marriage, I will be a different wife than you had before. And she wasn't saying like, I'm going to treat you different. She's basically saying on a, uh, from, 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 from a, uh, from in essence, who I am to you changes. It changes like how I feel and, and what I know you to be to me, that changes. The things I have to guard for myself, that changes. Because ultimately, the changing the covenant, changing God's covenant, perverting God's covenant, it should affect all of us. If it doesn't affect you, how important was it to you? So, so understanding that there's no guarantee, but there are plenty of cases where people go, you know what? I'm, I'm broken. I'm going to walk through those beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to walk through the, 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 poor, the poverty of spirit that I need to feel over my sin. Let me just say this. We talked about this when we preached about it. Y'all, for many of us, this is the hardest thing. I don't want to have to sit in my stuff. I don't want to be reminded of my stuff. How many times are we arguing? Maybe argue with your spouse. We're arguing together and, and you know, you bring up something and I don't like it because I don't want to have to deal with that. Then I bring up something and you don't like it because you don't want to have to deal with that. You, and then, you know, we can hide it and be like, why are you bringing up old stuff? Well, if those things weren't, right, weren't rightly repented of, then the thing is still in the room. Then the presenting offense is still in the room. And the only way for me to show you that I'm genuinely repentant is when these things are still in the room, I've got to enter into it and go, yes, I know that is a presenting pain. And I know the reason why. And if I'm going to follow that whole zealously wanting to clear myself, you know what zeal does? It doesn't get tired and go, why are we talking about this again? Zeal goes, if this pain is still there, then I'm going to keep showing up. If I don't have that zeal, then I don't have God's heart for repentance and reconciliation. And I can just say, on this one, I'm not rocking with Jesus. And let's just say that then. So if we were to come to this place, then it's really important that we stop and go, if I'm going to walk through these rhythms, I'm going to walk through these rhythms of repentance. I'm going to show up and be present, and I'm going to enter into the things that, whatever it is that caused the affair, I'm going to walk through that together. And, we, and there are couples that do that. And there are couples that, again, the marriage may not be the same, but there's a complete different relationship. And there's a different marriage and many fruitful marriages that can still happen. But you can only do that either side, whether you have had an affair or not. You can only enter into that if you go back to God's view of marriage. That's the only way. Your marriages stay together because of God's view of marriage. Your, your, your marriages come and reconcile because of God's view of marriage. And the only, and once we violate God's view of marriage, you don't know what could come. That's the reason why that, that going into marriage, knowing that is so important. I think that when we see the ways that God completely loves us, remember this, if you're in that position, either you've been hurt and you're trying to figure out what it means to, to, to understand who God is in the midst of your pain, or you've been the one that did the hurt and you're trying to figure out where am I now in God's eyes? How do I come back and know that I'm loved by God? You have to, you have to know God loves you the way that he told Hosea to love Gomer. 
We preached through that before. Now, sometimes I think people unfairly preach this to go, and therefore this is what you, ch- you should do if you've been cheated on. And that's not what that point is. That point is to show Israel as the wayward wife and God uses this example. Most people think it's, a, it's, it's more figurative, but it's an example of Hosea, the prophet, and this woman who is a harlot or a prostitute and is out in the streets. And he says, hey, she's in those streets, but you're going to make her her wife, make her your wife. And even after she's with you, she's going to go back to the streets and you still need to make sure you commit to her, love her, be there for her and call her back to you. Now, please understand, this isn't necessarily a how to stay married. That's not what that is. The church has been guilty of guilting people into staying in situations that are toxic, damaging and are not of God. And we've gone, but it's biblical. Well, it's in the Bible, yes, but you've missed the point there, sir, ma'am. The point here is, yes, there, God loves you like this. And in many ways, some of y'all, only God can love you like this. God loves you in such a way. So no matter where you are and no matter what you may have done, understand God loves you in the way that, that, that Hosea loved Gomer. You've done X, Y, and Z, come back to me, I love you. You've been over here and you've hurt and you've harmed, come back over here, I love you. You've done damage over here. Come back to me. I want to heal that. The only way that you can truly be in a place of repentance, if you've been on that side, is not to try to make yourself not feel so bad about what you did. Engage the badness of what you did and trust that your father has his arms wide open saying, come to me. I love you and I'm not letting you go. So wherever you are, whether you've been in a place of being hurt or whether you've done the hurting, Don't let those things change what God says about marriage. And don't let those things change what God says about you. Because ultimately, one of the things that we see throughout throughout God's relationship with us is there is nothing, nothing, nothing that separates you from his love. Nothing. And if you don't hold on to that, whether you've, again, been the one that's been hurt or the one that's hurting. You realize many times if you've been the one that's been hurt and you're so damaged and so frustrated by it, guess what you might become in the next marriage? Because maybe you went and got remarried elsewhere because you hated how bad you were hurt. And that was the main reason why you got married because, man, this makes me feel so much better than the one that hurt me did. And now that I'm with somebody that makes me feel so much better, now I can really be loved the way I should have. And I know I should have been loved that way. But what happens when somebody else yet comes along and goes, I can top that too. If you don't stick to God's plan, you will move from being the victim to the to the one that causes the damage. It's vitally important that wherever we find ourselves, that's why we don't get a chance to point fingers and be like, "Ooh, you were the one that cheated. Ooh, you." We don't get to do that because we've got to go. Man, I'm just a moment's opportunity and time away from being that one. If my mind doesn't stick into where God's heart is, so we don't get to turn our nose up. We don't get to be able to hold and push people down here, especially when people are broken and people are trying to repent and trying to go into a place where they can follow God well. We don't get to do that because God doesn't do that. So when we come to this, this picture of what Jesus is saying, ultimately Jesus is showing that if you have this view of God's heart, if you understand how God loves you, you would never ever flippantly get into a marriage with a person and you will never flippantly exit one. You will never flippantly do things to cause your marriage to end. If you really truly know how God loves you, then you're going to be sold out for the rest of your marriage going, how do I love you the way God loves me? 
If you're not honest about the ways that God loves you, if you think that God loves you because of how obedient you are, then the moment you see your spouse doing things that are not necessarily obedient in your, in your eyes, you'll feel justified to do some things. But if you understand that God loves you despite the times that you are not obedient, then that is the grace with which you start to offer to your spouse. This is the way the gospel works, y'all. This is the way he loves us. This is the way we should love each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, out of all the analogies or all of the metaphors you can use to describe your relationship to us, to describe the way that you love us, you, you use many. You use family metaphors and you use uh, agrarian metaphors like sheep and shepherds. But God, so often you use one that is that of a, of a husband and a wife. And so, God, I pray, I'm reminded of the passage, I believe, in Ephesians that talks about how this was a mystery, but now it has been revealed that this is really talking about Christ and his church. God, I pray that we would see, whether we're single or whether we're married, whether we're struggling, God, I pray that we would see marriage the way you see your relationship to us. God, I pray that you would see that we would get a a heart that that has great compassion, but also uh, great zeal to protect because God, I, I, I pray that we would get to a place where we, we know, you told us that we are, we are living, legible letters. The old King James called it epistles. We are letters known of all men. God, I pray that the way that we conduct our marriages will be a good letter about who you are to the world. I pray that if we choose to get into a marriage, that we get into it with the knowledge that we are living letters to be read by all. God, I pray that we ask ourselves, if somebody opens my envelope, what will they read? God, we pray that that would happen not so that we can brag to everybody about how great this marriage is or how great this spouse is. That's great to be thankful for those things. But God, I pray that we would say, Lord, I want, I want your name to be made famous. I want people to go, wait a minute, your marriage works like that? But yeah, we, we try to do this because we know that this is the way that God loves us. God, I pray that people would be so drawn to who you are through the way that we love one another, through the way that we repent to one another. God, I pray for each and every one of us here as we go wherever we're going, as we go back to our homes, go back to our jobs, go back to our families. God, I pray that this principle would just emanate, that it would be so unavoidable that anybody that's around us after this, all they see, all they know is something different. Man, that that works different for you. Man, you're painting a picture for me that, that is different than the way the world works. God, I pray that our letters look different than the rest. And I pray that you would break us in the ways that we need to be broken and then comfort us in the ways that we need to be comforted. Lord, let this be done for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. 
please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.